Hey everybody, I'm Kristen, and welcome to the very first episode of the Eating Disorder Recovery Speakers Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into stories, inspiration, and guidance from other people who are in recovery from or who have recovered from their eating disorders. Just want to give a quick shout out to my friend Mike for making that intro music for me. When he said that he would do it, I asked him to make a song that made my listeners want to dance a little bit before we got to the content of the episode. One thing you might learn about me over time is how much I love to dance, which to the people that are listening that know me is probably kind of shocking. Um, My best friend says that I'm never more Jersey than when I'm dancing, which is probably true, but that is neither here nor there. So I just want to welcome you to today's episode. I'm so excited to have you here. Like I said, um, this is something that I can't even say I've wanted to do for a long time. It actually happened pretty quickly. Um, I was talking in a business coaching group that I was part of about how I wanted people with eating disorders to have the opportunity to hear other people that were in recovery or who have recovered speak unless you are part of a program that um, brings in eating disorder recovery speakers there really isn't the opportunity to hear stories of hope and recovery and how people do recover and can thrive after having an eating disorder so that was really the purpose of me making this and I have some friends that know a little bit about podcasting, and so they helped me get the equipment, and I'm just ready and excited to be able to share this with you. I'm also a little bit nervous. My uh, general disposition is kind of serious and dry and sarcastic, and I'm not really sure how that's going to translate over audio, but that being said, we're going to give it a try. So the idea with most of the episodes of this podcast is that I will interview other people who are in recovery or who are recovered and they'll tell their stories and then I'll ask them some questions that I have or some questions that I've collected over Facebook or Instagram from people that are struggling so that you can really get a gauge on what it was that helped them recover. Um, I want to interview a lot of people because I want to show that no one recovery journey is the same. There's so many ways to recover and therapy and psychiatry and nutrition. Those are all ways and those are all really important tools for recovery. But there's also so many other things. And I really want to show that what it is like to open your recovery network up to yoga and religion and traveling and so many other things that could potentially be the missing puzzle piece to your full recovery. Um, My teacher, who you'll probably hear me talk a lot about, says that there's a difference between working hard and doing something that works. And I hear from so many people that are in recovery that they're working so hard and they haven't recovered yet and they're just so exhausted and I get that. And it's like, 
maybe there's something else that you need to be doing too. You know, if you've been trying the same things over and over and over and you're not budging or you're not really moving in your recovery, what else can you do or what else can you add to what you're doing that might be that thing that's going to take you from being in recovery to being recovered? So I want to interview other people, have them tell their stories, have me ask them questions. And then the other thing that's going to be happening with these podcasts is after I uh, launch an episode of someone being interviewed, we'll actually do a live Q&A. Um, so you can sign in and I'll give you all of those details, but you'll be able to sign in for free and it'll be me and the person that I interviewed and you can come in if you have questions or if their story resonated with you, you can sign in and ask them your questions and have them answer and get a little bit of like virtual face-to-face -face time with them. That I always think is kind of the biggest benefit of hearing recovery speakers is not only to hear their story, but to be able to ask your questions and have them answer them. So I'll give you more information on that for this episode as this episode moves along. Today, this episode is going to be me. I will tell you my story. I think that that's probably a good place to start so that, you know, I've got some credibility behind me. Um, and you know, my journey, my journey with my illness, my journey with my recovery, my journey with my relapse, my journey with my recovery again. Um, so that's going to be where we start and we will get going with that right now. So one question that I got asked on Facebook was, what was I like before my eating disorder? And so I think you'll hear, you know, when I ask other people these questions, they'll have their own answers. But um, generally, at least I think I was a pretty serious kid. Um, I was always really smart. I always put a lot of pressure on myself to do well in school, even as early as elementary school. I also think um, I was kind of socially awkward, and I remember always having a hard time making friends and keeping friends, and I don't know if that was because I was kind of a depressed kid or if not really feeling like I fit in or having friends made me depressed, but I would also say it's probably kind of like a sad, depressed kid, and I know that that definitely came out in middle school because I remember teachers kind of being like, why don't you come eat lunch with me? And I'd go eat lunch with the music teacher or with the band director. Um, and I think that probably attributed to my eating disorder. I think the eating disorder is probably something that was always living inside of me and it was just waiting for a reason to be expressed. And um, the first time I realized it being expressed was in middle school and it was just like kind of expressed. I remember being really depressed. Um, I grew up with a father who was an alcoholic who is now in recovery and we have a really amazing relationship. But when I was growing up, it was a little bit volatile and he was drinking and then he recovered through religion. So then he was super religious. And I think, you know, there was a little bit of turmoil for me at home with that, um, which attributed to it. And then again, like I said, I put a lot of pressure on myself. I remember getting a C on a science test in fifth grade and literally just breaking into tears the moment I saw that grade. Um, and I think that internal pressure that I put on myself, my parents did not put that on me, that I put on myself probably also really contributed to my eating disorder. 
Um, so like I said, I think it first showed up in middle school. And then from what I remember, it got a little bit better in high school, though I also remember seeing the student assistant counselor in high school, which is kind of like the school therapist. So it couldn't have been that much better, but I don't think anybody really knew about it in high school. Not the eating disorder symptoms, not the fact that I was like throwing my lunches out and things like that. But I think that teachers at least were aware that I was really serious and I was sad. And I think in high school, I started to have a little bit more of an awareness of that about myself. But I had friends and you know, I went out and I went to prom and I graduated eighth in my class. So, you know, I was succeeding. I was captain of my volleyball team. Everything was pretty much fine, but there just was always been this underlying seriousness and sadness, I think, with me and my general disposition. When I went to college, I know that that's kind of when things started to get out of control. I think in an effort to combat the dreaded freshman 15, I probably tried to get quote unquote healthier when I went to college. And that meant watching a little bit of what I ate, taking advantage of the fact that Ithaca College had a pretty cool fitness facility. And so it, it started with that, which I think was just kind of, you know, just like me trying to figure out what it meant to be healthy in college. Um, I had a really great group of friends in college. I was in a great dorm. Um, I loved Ithaca, and I think that like things were going pretty well. Um, at least I felt like they were. I think that the first time my eating disorder really showed up, like around this time, I was very, very unaware of it. Like I was not consciously choosing to not eat. I was not consciously choosing um, any of my symptoms really. Like it just, I was just doing them, and I was completely unaware that I was doing them. March of my freshman year, my grandmother passed away, which was really traumatic for me. Um, my grandfather had passed away and, and that wasn't nearly as traumatic. And I think the part that was traumatic was, you know, we knew that she was dying. So the whole family went to the hospital and we were all there with her when she passed away. And I remember kind of her taking her last breath I remember the doctor coming in and quote unquote saying that she had expired and I don't know what it was about that, but there was something about that that really just really hit me hard. Um, and I think it was really after that that it started to get full blown. So that was March of my freshman year in college. When I came home that summer, I think people noticed that I had lost a lot of weight. And again, I didn't even notice. I was not even actively weighing myself at the time. I just didn't I just like, I don't, I just wasn't eating. Um, but I know that one of my aunts had, I think said something to my mother. I had gone back to my high school just to visit some of my teachers. And I know some of my teachers were saying things to my sister, but I just wasn't that aware of it. Um, I started going to therapy that summer cause I did know that I was sad and that I was depressed and, um, the therapist just clearly didn't understand eating disorders. And I just remember like walking in one day and her being like, what do you want to talk about? And me saying, how about the fact that I've only had like four grapes to eat today? And her being like, yeah, we talked about that last week. What do you want to talk about this week? Um, so just, you know, not really knowing what to look for in terms of help, but also just not really knowing like what I was getting help for. I just knew that I had no appetite and that I was depressed. 
So I went back to Ithaca College my sophomore year and I lived with all of my friends. Um, I was in a co-ed dorm, so I had a female roommate, but males and females could be um, on the same floor. And at the time I had a lot of male friends and it was just so much fun, or it should have been so much fun because we had like five or six rooms in a row. We were all really good friends. We were always hanging out with each other. You know, and when I think back of it, it's just like, it should have been great. And it wasn't. And um, it didn't help that my roommate was also struggling a lot. She was also depressed. Um, she also had an eating disorder. Um, you know, she was using symptoms that I wasn't at the time using. And I think we just kind of fed off of each other in that way. Like I said, I was so unaware of it. Like I remember telling her that she needed to get help. And I remember calling her parents once and being like, your daughter needs help. And the whole while just being so ignorant to the fact that like, I needed help. Like I really needed help. It was sophomore year where it got really bad. And I just, there got to this point where I just like, I wasn't going to class anymore because I was so depressed and I was crying all the time and when I did go to class like I remember standing outside of a one of my classrooms once with like my whole class and the professor coming up to me and just being like are you okay and I wasn't I think I had been crying all day but I was just like yeah no I'm fine but I just wasn't and it was so obvious that people knew I wasn't but I just was so lost um so like I said, I just, I just wasn't going into class anymore. And I think at that point, I knew that I needed more help than I could get in college. And, you know, I had been seeing a therapist there, um, but it just, I just wasn't happy. And I think at that point, I knew I was struggling with an eating disorder, um, but I was still just so unaware of it. Like it was not conscious, but I was so sad. Like, I don't know how many times I can say house. I just remember I was so sad. And not only was I so sad, but probably just because I was barely eating. Like, when I think back to that time, like, my mom will, like, recall times that I called her. Just, like, a wreck. And I just, no memory. I don't remember that at all. Like, there are, like, gaps of time from that time in my life that I just don't remember. Um... But I do remember laying in bed and just being like, I there's no point to me being in college if I'm not going to go to class anymore. And that's when I decided that I needed treatment. And, you know, my family knew I was depressed. I don't think they knew how severe my eating disorder was. And so from Ithaca, I called Renfrew, the Renfrew Center um, in Philadelphia. And I guess I did an intake over the phone. This also for me is a little bit fuzzy, but... I think I did an intake over the phone. I think over the phone, they thought that I would need residential, but they ideally wanted to meet me before they told me if that's what I needed. So I took a medical leave of absence from college. I packed up all of my shit into my car and I drove from Ithaca, New York to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I did my in-person intake there at the Renfrew Center. They decided that I should be in residential, but they didn't have a bed for me yet. So I ended up driving back up to northern New Jersey and I stayed with my parents for a few weeks until a bed opened up 
and then a bed opened up and then I was on my way back to Philadelphia where I would do my first stay in residential treatment for girls with eating disorders. Um, being in residential eating disorder treatment is just like freaking weird. And um, I, first of all, I, I really liked it, which is I guess also kind of weird, but I actually did really like it. I did really well in treatment and I think I just generally do well as part of a community. Like I always did well um, on my college campuses and I did well when I would go to this camp every November and I just, I think I did well in treatment. I think the counselors saw something in me so they really worked with me and they really paid attention to me. I met so many amazing, like brilliant, funny women that just got it. And so being in treatment was so hard but it was also, you know, I didn't hate it. Um, but it was weird. Like, it's just weird. Like, you know, you sleep in a hospital gown and then you get up early in the morning, like so early, like four o'clock in the morning. And then you get weighed and your vitals get taken and they ask you when the last time you took a shit was and you drink Gatorade and then you go back to bed. And then when you need to use the bathroom, you've got to ask somebody and they stand outside it because they need to make sure you're actually going to the bathroom. And it's just a weird experience. You know, mealtime is weird. They're, you're eating and you're crying and other people are crying and other people are freaking out and it's weird and it's great. And I and if you're listening and you think you might need to be in residential treatment, like it's going to be hard, but it also could be really great. Um, and so I don't want you to be scared to go because it might really help you and you might really meet people that will be in your life for a really long time and you can inspire each other and you can give each other hope. And that's something that I, I just really got from treatment. Um, my first time in treatment, I just, like I, had, I keep saying, I didn't really know what was happening. Like I knew I had an eating disorder. I didn't really know what was happening. I didn't know why it started. So I did a ton of art therapy because I just didn't feel like I had the words to describe what was going on in my head. So the art therapist's name was Sandra, and I spent a lot of time with Sandra and just drawing and doing art, and I discovered oil pastels, which I loved. Um, I was required to do a lot of family therapy, um, which was challenging, but I just remember being very out of touch with my body, like when we had to do movement therapy, like I, as much as I love to dance now, like I did not like to move at all then. Um, and I also learned about boundaries, I think, for the first time. And I remember being really unsuccessful trying to set them with people, but I remember consciously trying to set boundaries with the other women that I was in treatment with. As weird as it was, and as much as I loved it, um, you know, at some point you've got to leave treatment. And I remember really delaying leaving. Like, I just didn't want to leave. I knew I wasn't ready to leave. And I think I had been there for about nine weeks at that point, and it was just like, it was time to go. So I left, and um, I went to my parents' house, and I stayed there, and I did, uh, the Renfrew Center has a lot of outpatient places, so I started with day treatment, and then I went to IOP treatment, and then they decided that they weren't really helping me. They thought I needed something called DBT, so I stopped going to the Renfrew Center, and I started going to the Koch Center, 
which had a more expansive DBT program. Um, and that's where I got assigned to a therapist that ended up really being my therapist for a long time. And she helped me so much. Um, her name was Tina and you'll probably hear me talk about some of the stuff that she said to me that really helped, but I ended up at the Koch center. Um, and I ended up applying to a local college and getting in. And, um, so I started going to that school. I hated that school. So I only stayed for a few weeks and then I quit. Um, and I decided I was going to go back to Ithaca. I remember really at that time not doing well. Like I was weight restored, quote unquote weight restored. But as you all I'm sure know, you are not, you might be weight restored, but that does not mean you're better. And so I was miserable because I was in this body that I didn't like and that I didn't recognize. And I just found myself being so jealous of like, like prepubescent girls and boys. Like I just wanted to be thin and skinny. I wish I didn't have breasts. Like I didn't want to look like a woman. Woman. Like I think a lot of people think that eating disorders is about getting like more attractive. And for me, it was the exact opposite. I wanted to be as unattractive as possible because I didn't want attention. And you know, through treatment it's been thrown out that there could be possible, like in my past, some possible sexual abuse, but I have no recollection of it if it happened. Um, but I do know that I just, I didn't want to be attractive to men. I didn't want to look like a woman and I did not want to get better. And so I was going to treatment and then, you know, my sister actually reminded me of, we had a meeting. It was like me, my therapist and my family before I decided I was going back to Ithaca and my sister being like, she's not better. Like she could see that I was not better. My family must have known, but I'm a stubborn person. And so I ended up going back to Ithaca. I went back the spring semester. So January of my sophomore year and I relapsed, or I guess it was a sophomore, uh, spring of my junior year. I relapsed really hard, really fast. I lost a lot of weight and this time it was very different than the first time. This time it was a very conscious. I was actively counting calories. Um, I was very symptomatic. This time I had started purging. I was barely eating. What I did eat, I was purging. Um, I thought I was being so secretive, but there's just no way that I was being secretive because I just, I was always leaving things early to go be symptomatic. I, I remember leaving a Super Bowl party. I remember leaving a potluck. I remember always having to leave the dining hall because I needed to go get rid of my lunch. Like I was barely eating and I was getting rid of all of the food that I was eating. And I lost a lot of weight in a very short amount of time. And I remember going to the doctor because I had to do weekly weigh-ins on campus and always losing weight and just always like being so happy that I was losing weight. And they'd be like, if you lose another pound, you've got to leave. And me almost like daring them like, yeah, okay, great. Like just daring them, like kick me out. No problem. Um, but I was still miserable. And I, I recently again had this thought like pieces come back to me because I just don't remember so much of that time of my life because I was just so disconnected. But I remember being in the bathroom of the apartment that I was living in on campus after having thrown up my dinner. I guess it was my dinner. I don't know. But I was just on the ground and I was just devastated and I was crying. And I don't know if I asked for my friend to come in or if she knocked on the door and asked me if she could come in. And I remember it was 
she came in and I was just like on the floor in my underwear, just a mess. And then my other friend came in and I think that was really when I realized like, I need a lot of help, like a lot more help than I thought I needed. And I don't think they realized how bad it was until that moment too. So I started seeing a therapist again there. And I remember going in to see her, her name was Karen. And just being like, and I loved Karen because she was just like, I just felt like I could say anything to her, the grossest stuff about having an eating disorder I could say to her. And I remember just looking at her and being like, I want to go back to Renfrew. And she said, why? And I was like, because I want permission to eat again. Because this time it was so different and it was so conscious and I was consciously being sick, but I felt so out of control but I just, I just wanted to eat and felt like I didn't have permission. I could not allow myself to eat. And so I wanted someone else to allow it for me. And so she said, great. She called Renfrew. And again, I took a medical leave of absence and I went back to treatment for the second time. And this time in treatment was very, very different. Um, there was a, a really big shift. And I just remember talking a lot. Like the first time I did a lot of art therapy, the second time I barely did art therapy and Sandra was still there and she even mentioned to me, like, I don't ever see you this time. And it was because like, I just, I just wanted to talk about it and I wanted to get it out. And, um, I still felt disconnected to my body, but I, I was just more connected, I think, to who I was. And I didn't really need family therapy anymore because it, it, it was just this time it was just about me and like I just had to get over my shit and I had to figure it out and I had to take responsibility for my treatment and um so again I did really well and um I remember the at the time I don't know if this still happens but at the Renfrew Center in Philadelphia they have something called the Renfrew House which is where they move some of their patients to and there's just a lot more freedoms or there was a lot more freedoms in the Renfrew house and so I think once or twice a week we had to order dinner out or lunch out and I remember meeting with the nutritionist at the time and being like I'm going to order two slices of pizza which is kind of what everybody else was doing and 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 her being like um no you can definitely order more than that like you are stronger than that and she made me order this meatball parmesan sub and I remember being petrified but also remember being like yeah cool I'm gonna do it and and everybody else was eating and I was eating a gigantic meatball parm sub and um and I didn't really freak out that much afterwards and so unlike the first time um I felt very ready to leave so I was there for six weeks this time and it was time to go I left and I was I actually didn't do IOP or day I went back and did outpatient treatment twice a week with Tina my therapist um, I must have been seeing a psychiatrist and I, I don't know if at the time I was seeing a nutritionist, um, but I left, I started another local school in the fall. So Seton Hall University is where I started, um, because it just wasn't a good idea for me to be back in Ithaca as much as I loved it. And I still have such fond memories of it. I couldn't be well there for some reason. So I went back to, so I went to Seton Hall um, I still was definitely not better, but I was better than I had been. Um, you know, I just remember crying at Thanksgiving dinner and crying at my grandmother's when she put dessert out. Like it was still a struggle, but I was doing it. Um, and one thing I realized when I came out of treatment is that there's not a lot of help. You know, you could do a outpatient program like IOP or day treatment, but there's not a lot of help in reacclimating you to real life because 
coming out of eating disorder treatment, real life is fucking triggering. It is hard. You know, people are food obsessed and they talk about food and they talk about calories and they talk about their weight and they talk about their sizes. And that's just the way that life is. And being someone in recovery, you've got to learn how to live that life and like live in that life without flipping out all of the time. And so, um, I just remember it being challenging, but I remember doing it and I remember feeling really lonely and really empty and, um, not really having a lot of friends because I didn't have friends from high school really. And my college friends were still in Ithaca. So I started just trying things. I'd like tried to find something that I loved. And I remember I did, um, community volleyball. I did a writing class I joined um, New Jersey Young Professionals. I tried dance classes, and I didn't really find anything I liked until I until I found yoga. And yoga helped me a lot, um, and I don't know if it was actually yoga or if it was the community that yoga brought. But I, I just remember um, finding yoga and yoga helping. Um, and it helped in a lot of ways. It helped me get healthier because at the time I was really, my immune system was shot. Like my metabolism was shot. I did a, metab a metabolic test and it was said that I had the metabolism of like a 75 year old woman. And I got strep throat a lot. I got a sinus infection. I wound up with something called um, C. diff colitis, which really like old, old people get and old people like die from. Um, and I got that when I was like 22. Um, so yoga helped me get better physically. It helped me get better mentally. It gave me a community of people that liked to go out and liked to have fun. And I wanted to be a part of that. And because of that, um, I knew I had to really start to let go of my eating disorder. And that still took a long time. You know, it's not like I made that decision and it was gone. Like I would say it took three years still from that decision to start to really recover from my eating disorder. Um, but there was a big shift because I, I suddenly had friends and I suddenly had a life and I was practicing yoga and I suddenly was respecting my body more and I liked feeling strong and I liked having a good practice and if I didn't eat well, then my practice didn't feel strong. And so in a lot of ways, for me, yoga and the community that came with my yoga practice was the one of the final missing puzzle pieces. Um, I did start to see a nutritionist after I had that C. diff colitis and her name was Deborah, and she was phenomenal and she was another one of those missing puzzle pieces. I think it's really important to have a nutritionist that you trust when you've got an eating disorder. Um, I say this to my clients a lot when I hear that they're fighting with their nutritionist that one of the hardest jobs in the world must be being a nutritionist for girls with eating disorders because they hate you and they're combative and their eating disorder thinks it knows better. And I just remember Deborah being awesome. And I remember the first time I met with her, she gave me a lot of goals. And I remember flipping out, um, going to the grocery store to fulfill those goals and calling her. And she was the first treatment provider I ever had that I called. And she actually answered the phone. Like I didn't have to leave a voicemail and wait for her to call me back. She answered the phone. She was available. She worked with me and she was great. And so, you know, things were starting to look up. I got into a PhD program for um, a psychology program that linked eating disorders with yoga, um, which I actually ended up not going to, but, but I was getting better. Um, 
the year 2013 for me was, I think, the most pivotal year I ever had. Um, so it started out with, in December, just like feeling like a crap. And um, I had remembered back to a time where I really wanted to relapse. And Tina, my therapist, had said to me, you know, Kristen, when most people feel overwhelmed with life, they don't relapse so that they can go back to treatment and get a rest. They just take a vacation. And so I remember just being overwhelmed and trying to find a place to go. And about two and a half hours from my house is a place called the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Wellness or Yoga and Health. And so um, two weeks later, there had been, they were running a workshop called Quarter Life Calling. And I think I was 25 or 26 at the time. So I signed up for that. Um, and that workshop ran January of 2013. And that workshop still is the biggest turning point, I think, not only in my recovery, but just in my life. That's where I met um, my teacher, Kobe, who I'll refer to plenty of times throughout these podcast episodes. Um, but I just, she was just awesome. And I went and I was in a really dark place and I was not friendly and I barely made friends and didn't really like to move my body still. And I just remember January, 2013, quarter life calling was when I realized that like, it was up to me if I lived you know, it was up to me how I lived. It was up to me if I was happy. Um, I learned that no decision I made was going to be my last decision because I remember feeling so much pressure about my future and then that being what really kind of kept me stuck in my eating disorder in a lot of ways. And at Quarter Life Calling, I learned that I could just make a decision. And if I made the decision and I didn't like it, then I could make another decision. And if I didn't like that one, then there was another decision to be made. And I learned that, um, you know, there was ways to release anger and that like, I had so much anger to release. And I learned that my life did have meaning and it did have purpose, but it was really up to me what that life and that purpose was. Um, and because that workshop was so pivotal to me, the year 2013, I just took every workshop I could with Kobe and I went back to Kripalu and I followed her to Vermont and I followed her to New York City and then I went back to Kripalu and took a workshop with her and her her teacher Lauren Roche and it was a meditation workshop and I just remember I just cried that whole week and every time we had to meditate I cried and um, the word prana um, in, in, in Sanskrit and yoga and meditation can mean life force and I just remember you know, crying and Lauren, one of the facilitators, just being like, you know, prana can heal itself. Prana is self-correcting. And um, every time I cried, it was just prana healing itself. It was my life trying to heal itself. Um, and I also remember him looking at me one day and just being like, there's a part of you that's not broken. And I remember when he said that, like it, it felt like I had gotten punched in the gut because it was it was just what I needed to hear. I just remember feeling like something was innately wrong with me. Something was broken in me. And this is 2013. So this is like five years after being in residential treatment. You know, recovery is a long process. And I just remember him saying that and being like, yeah, like that is what I needed to hear. Um, that December, I went to Costa Rica with Kobe and I did her life coach training and um, again, like just a pivotal life-changing experience. She does an exercise where it's just like, get up in front of us and be yourself. 
which is the hardest thing. Like, think for yourself, like, what would you do? Like, everybody's watching you, and all you have to do is be yourself. Like, what would you do? Um, and it, it was just like, just 2013 was just the year for me. And after that, just things started to fall into place. And again, I, I still wouldn't have considered myself fully recovered, but I was like so close at that point. And um, after I left Costa Rica, that's when I decided like my work needed to be in eating disorder recovery and in helping women get better and reacclimate and find passions and stuff outside of treatment because I really believe without that, relapse is going to happen. Like if you don't have something that you think is better than your eating disorder, then why not just have your eating disorder? So a lot of the work I do with my clients, because I'm a recovery coach now, is helping them find those things. Um, you know, since I left Costa Rica, I've had a lot of job changes. Um, I managed a fitness club. I was a personal trainer. Um, I'm a yoga instructor. I managed a yoga studio. I managed an apartment building. And now I'm a recovery coach. So I teach yoga and I do eating disorder recovery coaching full time and that's it. And I love it. And it's a grind. And I feel like I have a story to tell and I feel like I found my purpose. Um, and I feel like my purpose is just to be like a support beam for people and a light beam for people and just to help show them the way and not only to show them the way, but to help them believe that recovery is possible. Full recovery is possible. You're not an addict. You're a being. You're not an eating disorder. You're a being. And we just need to figure out like what things you love and what things fill you up and what things give you purpose so that you find something else to choose instead of your eating disorder. So like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, after I do an interview, there will be an opportunity for a live question and answer period so that if you resonate with the story, you have a chance to virtually meet the person that I interviewed and ask them any questions that may have come up for you. Um, I'm going to be doing a live Q&A just with myself since I'm the person that talked today. And that question and answer period is going to be on February 3rd at 1 p.m., Eastern Standard Time. So that's a Saturday. It's February 3rd, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The way to log in to that Q&A will be in the episode notes for this episode. So you can just check out the episode notes and you'll see all of the details on how to sign in. Again, it's free Saturday, February 3rd at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So when I decided that I was going to do this podcast I reached out to a bunch of eating disorder groups on Facebook and also to my Instagram community and just asked them if they're struggling, what questions would they want to ask somebody who is recovered about their recovery journey? And so I'm just going to go through a few of them. I got a lot of responses, but I'm going to go through a few of them and just answer them for myself. Um, the first question is, why do you share your story? For me, I... I almost feel a sense of responsibility to share my story. Like it is my duty in this lifetime to share it. There's not a lot of people that come out and share their recovery story for eating disorders. And it's either because there's not a lot of people that have recovered, which I don't believe, or it's because there's not a platform or it's because they just don't want to go back to that time in their life. And either way, for me, I feel like it's my duty and my responsibility to show people who are struggling that there is a way out and 
that you might not believe it for yourself yet, but if you can lean into me and other people who say that they have recovered and see that actually they did it, then that means that you can do it too. It um, a question that I got was, does it get easier over time to share the story? And absolutely. Like it is, I'm so open about my eating disorder story. You can ask me anything and I will not hesitate. It's not hard for me to talk about. Um, I want to talk about it if, if it means it's going to help people, um, give them hope and, and, and suggestions and tools maybe to help them in their own recovery. What are some things that you heard through treatment that really helped you? So, um, you know, it's interesting looking back in retrospect because while I was struggling, like I didn't know a lot of what I'm about to say when I was struggling, but in retrospect, um, some things that people said to me that made a really big difference. One was when my therapist said most people take vacation, they don't relapse. That was huge for me. Another is there was a time when I consciously tried to relapse and I remember my therapist looking at me and just being like, it's not okay anymore. Like at one point you didn't know what you were doing. And so it was okay. But when you consciously choose to relapse, like that, she was just like, it's not okay anymore. Like, you know, better. And and she was right. And, and that always reminded me of a quote that helped me a lot in treatment by Maya Angelou that said something like we need, we did what we knew how to do at the time. And when we knew better, we did better. Um, so her kind of giving me that tough love, um, that made a really big difference to me. Another thing that helped me when I was in treatment um, was actually something that a therapist said to me that wasn't my normal therapist. So I saw this other woman when Tina, my therapist, would go on vacation. And we were talking about this instance that happened to me in college where one of my good friends came into my dorm room. And this is when I was really sick. She came into my dorm room and she said to me, you know, Kristen, if you don't get better, we can't be friends anymore. And at the time when, when she said that to me, I remember thinking like, you are such an awful friend. Like I am so sick and I'm so sad. And how dare you just walk away from me? What does it say about you as a friend? And I don't remember why I was talking to the, about this to the therapist. And she said to me, you know, Kristen, she was probably the best friend that you had. And when that therapist said that to me, I, I kind of, got silent and thought about it. And then I realized that she was right. The fact that my friend wasn't willing to watch me kill myself slowly. You know, the idea of enablers and addictions is really pervasive. And it's because we love our friends and we love our family and we want to help them not suffer. But, but sometimes like by making a blanket for them to stay sick, we actually are keeping them in their suffering. And I can't believe that my friend, who at the time was 19 or 20, was strong enough to just come in and be like, I'm not willing to do that. We can't be friends unless you get better. And I think what that taught me, um, well, the fact that my therapist went back and kind of reframed that for me as actually she was one of the best friends I had. The reason that helped me was because it really taught me something about boundaries and about how I can create boundaries for myself um, to keep myself safe. And sometimes that means walking away from people, not because I don't love them and not because I don't care about them, but because I love and care about myself and it's not good for me. And, and it might not be good for that person either to have me holding on and holding their hand. Like sometimes you have to hit rock bottom. And that was, like I said, that was really big for me because it, it, it made me understand the concept of boundaries in a way that I hadn't before. 
Another thing that I remember hearing um, was being told that I was a yes but person. And now that I think back, that that's really stuck with me, the yes but. And that basically means every time someone says something to you, you say yes but, like why it's not going to work, why you can't do it, why you're not strong enough, why your eating disorder is different. Yes, but my eating disorder this. Yes, but I'm afraid of this. Yes, but I'm not strong enough for this. Um, my teacher, again, Kobe, says taking take but out of your vocabulary. Like use and instead. Yes, it's going to be hard and I can do it. Yes, I might not think I'm strong enough and I'm going to try. That's something that's always stuck with me. Um, the other thing that stuck with me is the whole idea of an eating disorder voice. Like I remember when I was in treatment hearing like the whole like life without ed thing and you've got an eating disorder voice and just being like that is so stupid my eating disorder is way too complicated that book is way too simple and now that i think back about it it's like actually it actually could be that simple you know another thing my teacher says is how many workshops do you have to take before you realize that if you had just done what you learned in your first workshop, you would have never had to take other workshops. And that's kind of what I feel like with treatment. Like, had I just listened to what they were saying, had I not thought I knew better in the beginning, it would have saved me a lot of time and money um, in my own recovery and in my own treatment. Um, the last thing that I want to say that really made an impact on me is this the story of the, the four-minute mile. And there, this would happen to the 1950s, but it had been said that it was humanly impossible to run a mile under four minutes. Doctors and scientists and experts had just said, like, the human body's not capable of it. And in the 1950s, there were a few runners, and I'm not a runner, but I just still think this story is inspirational, but there was a few runners who were really close to running a mile under four minutes. There was one guy who ran it in like four minutes and two seconds. There was one guy that ran it in four minutes and one second. And there was one guy, his last name was Bannister, and he um, he just didn't believe, like if someone could run a minute, a mile in four minutes and one second, like why couldn't they do it in less than four minutes? So he just didn't really, he always believed that science and doctors were almost wrong on that. Like it was, it, it was possible. He always believed it was possible. So... In 1954, he did it, and he ran a mile in 3 minutes and 59 seconds, and he was the first man ever to do it. And so he did that in um, 1954. One month later, another person did it. And then one year later, 37 other people did it. And then two years later, 200 other people did it. And I believe that his belief that he could do it is what made him able to do it. And then when other people saw him able to do it, they believed that they too could do it, which is why suddenly, you know, zero to 200 in two years of people were able to run one mile under four minutes. And that story is something that's always stuck with me. A reason that that story had a, such a huge impact on me is because I kind of, um, I think I kind of started to view myself like Bannister um, in eating disorder recovery because... I felt like I had been told so many times that I would never fully recover. Like people did not fully recover from eating disorders. And I didn't believe it. Just like Bannister didn't believe the scientists that said you couldn't run a mile under four minutes. I just never believed that. And I felt like if I could recover, then 
other people could see that full recovery was possible. And then that belief would help them fully recover too. And that's kind of why I feel like it is my responsibility and my duty to speak up because I feel like I'm fully recovered. And if I can fully recover, then believe that you can fully recover too. How did you pay for treatment? That is something that I feel is really important to answer. So the first time that I went to treatment, my insurance company paid zero. They paid nothing because our insurance in the United States at least is backwards when it comes to mental health and especially eating disorders. And so um, I was diagnosed with anorexia the first time that I went in and I had never lost my period, which the DSM says is a quality of anorexia. So because I had never lost my period, I technically didn't classify as anorexic, even though I was very, very low weight. I was barely eating. All of the doctors said I needed to be in residential. They wouldn't pay for it. So um, my grandmother had passed away, as I had said, and and basically my parents had to use her inheritance to pay for my treatment. We're talking like $6,000 a week for treatment for an eating disorder that my insurance wouldn't pay for. Um, my family's always been really supportive. And when I was sick, like when, when you hear stories about mothers like lifting cars off of their children, like I feel like my, my mom didn't lift a car off of me, but I feel like my mom like really, really just like stepped up and um, was not okay with insurance not paying for me. So she, um, she joined a class action lawsuit against Horizon. They were my insurance company at the time and she won. And so from that, she got back um, $2,600, which again, is $6,000 a week that barely put a dent in it. So she um, contacted the New Jersey Department of Insurance um, and disputed a denial that she got from Horizon and she actually ended up winning. So um, the New Jersey Department of Insurance directed Horizon to pay for six weeks of my treatment because that was the limit that um, insurance companies would pay for and so they did. Um, so my mom just like kicked ass when it came to getting me support. And then she also found a resource, I think one of my cousins had given it to her. Um, and it was the New Jersey... I don't remember the exact name, but I'll put it in the episode notes, but it was basically a fund for children, which at the time I was 20, I guess I still classified as a, a child with severe illnesses that uh, insurance wouldn't cover, and they covered a lot of my treatment as well. And the reason I share that is because um, insurance denies a lot of people. Like every three days, people were leaving treatment because their insurance cut out because suddenly they weighed enough to not be classified as anorexic anymore or whatever the reasons are. Um, I, I share this because I want you to know that there are other ways of paying for your treatment if your insurance says no and to look at them and to try to find grants and financial support in other ways if insurance won't pay. Because if you are sick and you need treatment, you need treatment. And just to to start to maybe Google or do some research on other ways to pay for your healthcare treatment when your insurance company is failing you. Do you have any advice for family members of someone in treatment? Um, at the Run Free Center, they had something called MFG, Multifamily Group, which was like a support group for the girls in recovery and also for their families. And it was like a big group of people that would come. And I remember once hearing a parent talk about just feeling helpless and like they didn't know what to do. And I remember raising my hand and kind of like blowing my own mind with what came out of my mouth. But basically what I said was, um, 
having an eating disorder is like riding a roller coaster. Like it's turbulent and there's highs and there's lows and there's sharp turns and it's fast and it's, you know, and I think a lot of families, when they have someone who is struggling with an eating disorder in their life, like jump on that roller coaster with them and they're riding the highs and the lows and the turns and they're riding it with their loved one, with their daughter or their wife or their son or their friend. And, um, I just remember being like, you can't stop the roller coaster if you're on the roller coaster. Like you have to get off of the roller coaster ride in order to pull the lever to stop it. And I guess advice that I might have is like be understanding and there's got to be a way for you to disconnect your life from the life of the person that's struggling. And not to say you don't love them, you don't care for them and you're not going to help them get help. But if you're riding the highs and the lows and you're on the roller coaster with the person that's struggling, you won't be able to stop it. You need to be able to take care of yourself enough that you can step back and be like, I'm not riding this roller coaster with you. I'm going to help you stop it instead. Um, this question I want to answer, what do you love about the way that you look? Because I think that um, girls in eating disorder recovery, not just girls, but men too, have a hard time answering that question. Let me tell you, this is what I love about the way that I look. I love my hair. I love my butt. And um, I love my abs and I love my stomach. And I can say that, like I can look at myself in the mirror and be like, I like the way that I look. I like my hair. I like my butt. I like my stomach. Um, sh there are days that I look at myself and I don't know, I don't like what I see. Um, but I'm able to step back and be aware enough that like if I liked what I looked like yesterday and I don't like what I look like today, my body has nothing to do with it. And I'm able to be like, okay, mentally, emotionally, what's actually going on with me now? But I do confidently, I'm able to say like, I like the way that I look. I like these things about me. The last question I'm going to answer is why is recovery worth it? And recovery is worth it because life can be so good. I remember when I was at Ithaca, I was driving, um, I was in the backseat, my friend Eric was driving and I was in the backseat with my friend Thea and she had the window open and she was looking out the window and I remember her just being like, Kristen, like, do you ever just like think like, oh my God, life is so good. I'm so happy to be alive. And at the time I was like, fuck no. Like, I don't think I said that out loud, but I was like, I wish I was dead every day. Like every, every day, all day, I hate being alive. And, um, now the amount of times that I take a step back and I'm like, it is so good to be alive is a lot. I do that a lot. Life is precious and life is beautiful and the world is beautiful and nature is beautiful and friendships and relationships are beautiful. There are so many good things in my life right now and there are so many good things waiting for you in your life. I used to think that my eating disorder was so bad and the worst and so complex and it was but I use that as reasons why I couldn't get better because my eating disorder was worse than that person's or my eating disorder was more complex for that to work and it just wasn't true and that was a blow to my eating disorder's ego but life can be good you can recover if I can recover you can recover I just want to thank you so much for listening today I hope my story helped or inspired you even in the smallest way as a recovery coach, I always assign homework. So if you're up for it, I leave you with this question. 
What is one small thing that you can do right now to further your recovery? One small thing, light a candle that you love, journal, text a friend, take a walk, sit in the sun, call a treatment center. What is one small thing that you can do right now to further your recovery? And just a reminder that the live Q&A for this episode is going to be on Saturday, February 3rd, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can look in the show notes or you can look on my website for all of the details on how to sign in and see me and ask me questions and give me any feedback or comments that you might have. I can't wait to see you in that Q&A. For more support, check out my website, alwaysabeing.com, where I have a free recovery archetype quiz that you can take that comes with a workbook of recovery tools, journaling prompts, and exercises based on your personality and your recovery archetype. Also, keep tuning in to the Eating Disorder Recovery Podcast for more episodes and interviews with people who have recovered. And I want to hear from you. Email me at kristin at alwaysabeing.com if you are well into your recovery or if you're recovering to be interviewed on this podcast. Also email me with any questions that you have that you would like me to answer on the podcast. If this episode resonated with you or if you think the concept of this podcast is a good one, please help other people find it more easily by rating it on iTunes, maybe leaving a comment or sharing it with other people that might also find it helpful.